Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 123 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. You just wanted to say it that way. I did. No one ever says it that way. I'm Steve Vladek. Um, Bobby, hi. Hey, do you, know why, do you know why six is afraid of seven? Because uh, eight, because seven, eight, nine. Yes. <laughs> it's a counting themed episode of the National Security Law Podcast. Really? I, I feel like that's it. Do we yeah. have any other counting? Well, no, we kind of we kind of put it all up front there. Do um, we have anything else to talk about? Uh, Champions League final, Saturday afternoon, Spurs, Liverpool. Come on, you Spurs. Come on, y'all Spurs. Um, we've got Julian Assange making oh, news yeah, again, or, or shall we say DOJ making news in relation to Julian Assange. And that'll be our main item. And probably an equal amount of time will be then devoted to uh, the Sierra Club v. Trump border wall decision where we've got, what, what was it, a preliminary injunction? Mm-hmm. Um, uh Having to do with some aspects, not all aspects, but some key aspects of the panoply of spending measures that the Trump administration cooked up to uh, build the wall, as they say. Uh, Beyond that, we've got uh, some SCOTUS roundup. Uh, You're going to have an even busier summer and fall than we thought, Steve. (sighs) Cert grant alert. Cert grant alert. Cert grant alert landing right here in the studio, no less. What a day. Congratulations and condolences. Yeah, I think that's right. And then we'll do our traditional National Security Division roundup, a couple of interesting case developments there. Uh, I want to kind of keep that theme going from the Supreme Court to the district courts to the it loss. Huh? Oh, that, 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 that thing. <laughs> the International Tribunal for the Law of the, the Sea. sea. Uh, it has issued a ruling in the uh, Ukraine um, a dispute with Russia involving the Kerch Strait, and it's pretty interesting. What counts as military activity? So we'll say something about that, and I think that'll probably round out the substance. Uh, have we got anything goofy to talk about now that our favorite show is done? We, I mean, we have, we have. I think we might, we might do a, in honor of the the impending beginning of the NBA Finals, maybe some NBA themed frivolity. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's stick to the NBA um, and, and why and why you know you're so you're you're having such a hard time watching Kawhi. <laughs> oh, gosh, it is so heartbreaking. It's bittersweet, I'll say that. And Kawhi, are you so upset, Bobby? Why not? <laughs> Touche, my friend. Why are you so upset? Episode title. I don't know if I can stomach it. We'll, we'll help. We'll work out my demons later. Why not? You know what was really also bittersweet? Kawhi. Graduation. Stop. <laughs> uh, graduation this this uh, past weekend. Steve the sunflower and I ceremony. Attended the sunflower ceremony. And uh, you know what's fun about it? It used to be at the big, uh, the basketball uh, stadium, the Irwin Center. And now for the past the, few the, years. The Irwin Center for non-Austinites is not exactly the most architecturally or aesthetically pleasing building in the world. They call it a drum, the drum for a reason. No, we've been doing it at Gregory Gym, which is this awesome small old venue that's the home of the uh, awesome Longhorn volleyball team a great and, place to and, watch a game and the the buy and sometimes tri-weekly faculty staff intramural basketball game oh now that's is that a ticketed event <laughs> yeah, I, yes we we pay people to come watch us yeah, exactly <laughs> where's your ticket here's how you get your check um, so we're there Steve and I and uh, and Steve I had to stand they didn't have a seat for me this time I had to stand as I read the names of every JD graduate all I think it was I don't know it was 270 276 I think was the final total one one scratch and, and I still and had you, to read the name and you did well well I uh, friends I have to use uh, my full-on announcer voice, Bobby Chesney, <laughs> now presenting Steve Vladek. Okay, no, that's not. You don't do it quite like that. I don't say now presenting, but you I. Pre- you also don't quite. You don't. You don't I do on the, the sh- on the one syllable, like some people. It's like a one syllable first name, right. no John middle name. John Smith. And, I, and so I drag it out, John Smith. And anyways, what's the reason we are mentioning this was the graduation speaker was the wonderful Neil Manny, who's uh, who's the managing partner at Sussman Godfrey. And Neil's given this great talk. He's obviously done some homework about the venue, and he starts talking about Gregory Jim being named for Thomas, Thomas Watt, Watt Gregory. Gregory. Now, he was the uh, attorney general in the Wilson administration throughout World War I, basically. He had a long, I think, five-year run as attorney general. Um, I frankly was unaware that Gregory Jim, which we're all very familiar with, was named for a UT law grad who was the attorney general. I never put those dots together. And so so I, I, I figured it was named for a UT law grad. I didn't realize that attorney general Gregory was the same. I didn't, I didn't know Gregory was a UT grad. And so like I didn't know that right, Gregory that's, that's was the thing. that Gregory. And of course, that Gregory, the World War I 
attorney general was uh, both a key drafter and the principal enforcer of the Sedition Act and the Espionage Act. The Espionage mm, Act. Mm. Yes. You know, the Espionage Act is rather relevant for our first topic. What a connection. UT Law graduation, Julian Assange. Who so, knew? So what's interesting about Gregory, by the way, I didn't, I didn't know this until this his bio. Um, President Wilson in 1916 wanted to put him on the Supreme Court. Yeah, and he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. Rather, he was worried about his hearing. So, so instead, <laughs> but so you know who? Do you know who he got instead? Uh, who was that? Wasn't when Charles Evans Hughes? Came, mm-hmm. No, Hughes who? was already on at that point. Yeah, yeah. Brandeis. No kidding! What yeah. a historical footnote. Yeah. So you got Brandeis because now maybe Brandeis would have shown up later. Yep. But uh, he got a spot because Thomas Watt Gregory Passed. said. Well, maybe that bad hearing, he didn't quite understand the question. Huh? Wilson, do I want to be? Do I want to go to court with you? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll stay here. Yeah. Do you want to go to the tennis court? Yeah. Do you want to build a volleyball court? That must be what he thought. All right, we're, we're spiraling into All right, insanity. so speaking of the Espionage Act, though, I mean, obviously the biggest news of the week, um, if not the month, let's go with the week. These days it's, it's yeah, dangerous to get too carried yeah. away, um, was the 18-count indictment. Uh, the superseding indictment that DOJ un- unveiled against Julian Assange, um, including Bobby's 17 charges under the Espionage Act. Right. And so careful listeners are thinking, didn't you guys cover the indictment a while back? And weren't you saying it was no big deal, something about hacking we or did, something we, like that? We were and we did. And it was all true. Uh, <laughs> the superseding indictment, that that's just law talk for uh, issuing a successive indictment that expands upon or alters the prior one. So the grand jury has gone back to the well and updated things. And to put it in context, you know, so obviously Assange and the possibility of prosecuting Assange has been out there for a very long time. And throughout the time period that he's hiding out uh, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, um, people are wondering if and when he's indicted, will he be indicted under the Espionage Act? Will he be indicted either for uh, conspiring with Manning to uh, elicit the leak and to encourage and solicit the leak of classified information, or more specifically, national defense information? Um, Would he either in addition to or instead of that, be prosecuted for publishing, knowingly publishing these leaked materials. And the reason that's a big deal, it's not like we haven't had leakers published before. Leakers have been, sorry, published. (laughs) We've had them published before, Steve. We've also had them prosecuted. Um, It's not novel to think about prosecuting a leaker under the Espionage Act. What would be, relatively speaking, novel would be going after the third-party who is in the position that we often think of any run-of-the-mill national security journalist being in, where they're talking to somebody who's got the inside information, they're cajoling them, hoping they'll produce, they'll turn something over, and then they publish the results. And we talk, I mean, we've talked about this before. The, the most important thing to understand about the Espionage Act is it was written 102 years ago, before the Supreme Court's modern First Amendment jurisprudence, before the Supreme Court's modern vagueness jurisprudence. And so Congress didn't write criminal statutes back then the way that we demand Congress write criminal statutes today. So the statute is, I don't know if it's overbroad, Bobby, because that's a question of intent, but it is certainly capacious. It's um, certainly capacious. In, 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 in who it applies to, especially 18 U.S.C. Section 793E, which is the part that really is where the third parties face the most potential liability. Now, it, so Thomas Watt Gregory in the Wilson administration that and, guy. and partners in Congress. Are we going to have to rename the gym? Well, I, you know, the first thing I thought of when he started talking about this, I was like, huh, I wonder if this is going to stir the pot on renaming the gym. I don't think so. No. Uh, you know, Prosecuting that- people for sedition isn't quite the same you know. Well, but you know, they really they really went hard after a lot of what we would all to, most of us today would consider protected speech. But the the point is, they were this was a statute generated to be as capacious as possible, very much a wartime statute. This is all with an eye towards uh, protecting information. Although I will say, I was talking to a reporter about this, and I said the Espionage Act of 1917, which Congress enacted on the eve of the U.S.'s entry into World War One. She said, "Oh, 1917 was during World War One." That's the point where I'm like, free copy of uh, Guns of August for <laughs> Guns of August, I think, is too sophisticated. We need free copy of like a short history of World War One. 1914, people. 19, that's, that's, I thought that was pretty widely known. All right, but you know, the Americans, August, we weren't August, in. August 4th? We weren't in, but the Lusitania had been sunk by then, True. so the handwriting was on the wall yes. is the point of all this. The, the administration was pondering, you know, the run-up to war. Obviously, with uh, the election, that was not something they were emphasizing a whole lot, but uh, on but, the inside. So here's the problem. I mean, Bobby had this right, and I just want to crystallize the point. Um, until last week, um, the United States government had never 
um, unsealed an indictment that was charging someone with publishing information as opposed to, right as opposed to other acts and and at least a couple of the counts Bobby I think 15 through 17 got closer to publishing that's right, that's right. um and only once before had the government ever indicted someone um, who was a third party, as you say, um, who was the downstream recipient of a unauthorized national security? About Rosen in the and, APAC case, right? Stephen Rosen, not to be confused with the other Rosens. There are many Rosens. Indeed. Um, and this was a case that the government had brought in 2006. The Bush administration had brought against two APAC lobbyists um, who had worked with a State Department employee, Lawrence Franklin basically to relay classified information beneficial, Bobby, to Israel. Um, and, the, and the government tried to prosecute the two lobbyists in addition to Franklin, Rosen and Weitzman. Um, and the, is, that was the major sort of test case. That was a case that set off a whole bunch of alarm bells because it was the first time the government had ever crossed um, what Liza Goitian calls a constitutional Rubicon um, by going after a third party. And that case largely fell apart after... Because of First Amendment concerns, the district judge, Judge T.S. Ellis III, who we talked about on this show, before. The show before, um, basically held the government to a heightened mens rea requirement um, in the context of a 793E prosecution. So he did, in fairness, he did issue a ruling rejecting the idea that the charge had to be dismissed on First entirety. Amendment grounds. Yep. Here's, here's what he said there. Um, their position is that once a government secret has been leaked to the general public, and they the, being Rosen and Weitzman, right, in the first line of defense, thereby breached. That is, once the person who had the access leaks it, uh, the government has no recourse but to sit back and watch as the threat to the national security caused by the first disclosure multiplies with every subsequent disclosure. This position cannot be sustained. Again, this is Ellis writing. Although the question whether the government's interest in preserving its national defense secrets is sufficient to trump the First Amendment rights of those not in a position of trust with the government is a more difficult question, and although the authority addressing this issue is sparse, both common sense and the relevant precedent point persuasively to the conclusion that the government can punish those outside of the government for the unauthorized receipt and deliberate retransmission of information relating to the national defense. Now, that was just a district court decision. As you say, the case ultimately ends up falling apart uh, in various ways, but it's sort of out there as, a, as certainly some evidence that this issue might not go the way of protecting the republisher, if we can call them that. Yeah, but here's the problem. I mean, so I've, I, this is, I mean, you, you talked last week about how, you know, I, I seem to have found, I, I have an article for that, right? Yes. I, yeah. I actually have three articles for this one <laughs> um, and four congressional hearings. and, and the, That's not enough. Well, and two of those hearings were about Assange specifically. Um, and the thing is that, like, the Espionage Act if 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 the New York Times forget Assange for a second, mm -hmm. if you know one of our one of our friends who's a reporter for the New York Times were indicted under the Espionage Act for um, violating 793E in the process of news gathering, that is to say, not for like actively helping the leaker steal the stuff, but just you know being a passive. Not entirely passive, but a largely it's like passive. an anonymous person uploads to the Times website, which has a secure upload right. facility for right. anonymous uploads. So it's a violation. It is a violation of the statute for the New York Times at that point um, to not immediately return the information to the government. It is a separate violation of the statute for the New York Times to turn around and redistribute the information. Um, and the concern is that, you know, that's a, that's a line the government had never crossed um, because once the New York Times is liable, Bobby, readers are violating the statute. The statute says, right, if you are in physical, if you're in possession of national defense information that you are not entitled to possess, you have to return it to the government, otherwise you're breaking the law. If I have a hard copy of the New York Times or a cached file on my computer, that with that, where the story includes leaked classified national security information, I'm violating 793. Hey, if it's in your brain, I think that means you have to go to a bar and drink yourself into oblivion to erase the files. Touche. But I mean, this is the problem, right? This is why it, the law does not just part of why the third party liability concern of the Espionage Act is so um, grave is because once you get to a third party, you get to 30th parties and 300th sure. parties. Now, you're, you drew a distinction there and developed a distinction a bit uh, between the possession without return, right, and retransmission. So one can imagine 
based on the sort of parade of horribles you just outlined, that perhaps the line could end up being drawn right there. That is, uh, you because of the uh, slippery slope you identified, it can't it can't be that the third party, fourth party, thirtieth party recipient is is liable under the statute because it just proves too much. Everyone's liable and, and because it's on all our computers. Um, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that when you've received that, you can turn around and publish it further. Maybe they draw that line. That you can't redistribute something. But the statute that does, is to but, say you could go at. But you that's could. not the line Congress drew. And so and so the question that you know when with the Rosen case. Um, basically woke up a sort of a, a 30-year, a, do- a conversation that had been yeah. dormant for 30 well, wait, years. Wait, can I quibble with it? So, so Congress drew many different lines here. It identified, as you said, yeah. um, the the receipt without turning it back over to the government. That is, don't hold on to it. And then it separately, as you said, it separately punished um, and forbade retransmission. So that is a line that, in fact, Congress did draw in the sense that it made separate I prohibitions they're both, on both, they're both of those. Cr- they're both crimes. I know. And what I'm saying is it could be that what we're trying to figure out here is how does this intersect with constitutional protection? And I don't and I mean of course we don't know because there's zero case law because the government, you know, because the Rosen case fell apart, there's literally no case law. Um, I've been watching well, too much Parks and Recreation. Well, literally. I mean, I mean there's no there's no binding precedent. That's true. There's certainly no Supreme Court precedent other than New York Times versus United States, which we should talk about a little bit, but but we do have the one district court ruling that did reject the First Amendment claim. No, no, right. But but first of all, Rosen and White's Rosen and Weitzman, right? Weissman. Rosen and Weissman didn't even have a plausible claim that they were journalists, right? Rosen and Weissman didn't have a public concern defense, right? So so I don't even know that the that Ellis's opinion in rejecting the First Amendment defense in Rosen and Weissman would apply in a case where there's at least some thread of a claim of of public concern, whether or not you're a journalist, we'll talk about that too, yes. that the information at issue was on a matter of public concern. Because the folks who have defended, like Jeff Stone is perhaps the person I think of most when I think of people who have articulated what a First Amendment defense would look like in this context. And at the heart of a First Amendment defense is the idea, not that like it's about the sort of moral of the, of the you know, defendant, right? The mor- their morals or their or their you know, like their good faith. But that's entirely about whether the information at issue is a matter of public concern. Um, and it's by reference to this 1968 Supreme Court decision called Pickering, mm-hmm. um, which is about when right. um, government employee speech is protected right. by the First that's Amendment. That's like a landmark case in that area. Right. So you know, my concern, you know, yes, the Ellis opinion is the closest thing we have on point, and I don't think it's on point. Um, and so here, well, I'll, I will grant you that it is distinguishable in some ways. Yes, but it's not clear to me that Assange is on the line. You, you've drawn a line there that, on two dimensions, yeah. it could be an either-or situation. You have the: is this a journalist who's doing the retransmission? Which I don't think matters. Is it an pu- area of public interest? Which I do think matters. Interesting. So, so, so let me back up. So, All I right. have written, I have written about this, and so my view, which is not by any means anyone else's view, uh, and it's currently being trashed on Twitter, um, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, so my basic view on this is um, whatever you think of Assange, and I don't think much, um, it doesn't matter, um, right? That is to say— So he's no better situated than you or I. Uh, not only that, he's no better situated than, you know, I mean, like, I do see a straight line from a successful prosecution here to a potential future indictment, if not a successful prosecution, um, of a, you know, of someone who we would all agree— Of a newspaper. Of a, of a newspaper or of a journalist who we all agree was acting in the best, you know, traditions of the profession, right? Who was, you know, reporting on a matter of, of clear public concern, who was not unduly harming sort of sources, right? Like, you know, and, and the problem is not that I think Assange is that person. The problem is that try as the government might, and it tried in the press release and in the sort of embargoed background briefing— um, I don't think the law brooks the distinction that the government wants us to believe exists between what Assange did and what the New York Times does. And we've known for a long time that this was the view of many within the Justice Department and elsewhere in the government, both under the Trump and Obama administrations. There's been a multi-year battle about specifically that question. If you go after Assange— Are you setting the wrong precedent? Well, yeah. Can can he really be distinguished from a from a Washington Post or New York Times journalist? And, Eric, and, and as the story goes, Eric Holder said, I'm too worried about that. And so Eric Holder refused right. to approve these charges. Much more salient, since there's going to be a lot of people who won't find it completely dispositive. What you know, what Holder thought. Yeah. It's the, it, my impression is that for years it's been a bipartisan, both yes. 
uh, Trump and Obama administration uh, lawyers had struggled with this. Had struggled with this, and recognized it's pretty hard to draw that line. And and dare I say, career lawyers in the Justice Department. No, that's right. So um, I think Jack Goldsmith's piece at Lawfare on this, where he says, "Look, you can't draw the distinction. People have worried about this for years. The features that were emphasized about what Assange did, uh, cajoling Manning, working with Manning, having having very specific documents or categories of documents he wanted to be uh, disclosed." All these things, Jack points out, can be said to varying degrees about run-of-the-mill traditional journalists. You, you just can't really show there's a bright line between this case and those other ones. Now, whether that's dispositive for you is a, d- a different question, but I think it's only fair to agree that this does uh, get very close to the traditional journalism category. Though, for my part, I don't think I don't think uh, Assange is in this as a journalist at all. I think he's in this for very different but, reasons. But I mean, listen, I, I you know, folks are going to disagree about their personal views of Assange, and that's and that's as it should be. All all I want to stress is I don't think how we characterize Assange or how we describe Assange bears on how significant a precedent this is, um, either in a good way or a bad way, depending upon you know your 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 sensibilities. So let, me, let me tease that out because I want to understand your view as much as possible. Are, is what we're doing here talking about the way that the Espionage Act ought to be construed in order to uh, respect First Amendment boundaries? Yes, is that, that's what we're talking about here. Like, so yes. which parts of it? When can you still charge? Uh, presumably, you don't have a problem with leakers themselves who who violate their their duties and disclose classified national defense information. Um, you're not saying that they have a First Amendment right to disclose. The question is, what about the people who receive the leaks? That's really the concern. So I've, I've written, I've written that there may be extreme circumstances where there might be a incredibly limited First Amendment right to disclose on the part of the leaker, but that it's so extreme right. that like it, it virtually it's it's theoretical more than real. Well, we can at least say that leakers and their problems yes. is a separate topic. Correct. We're now talking about those of us, right. whether you're the first instance, and I think there's a big difference here. The person who's the counterpart counterparty actively engaged with the leaker, that's category one. Yeah. Category two is the counterpart who received something but had no engagement may not even know who the leaker is, but that, they're just but receiving Bobby, but it. But that exact distinction, I think, is blurred in the indictment, right? So so a good chunk of the charges put Assange on the former part of that line, right? That Assange was actively helping- Yeah, which indeed conspire- he was. I, again, yeah. right, I'm not defending- yeah. um, Right, that a good part of the indictment puts him on the sort of actively conspiring to help Manning violate the Espionage Act, um, right? Which, hey, fine. Um, you know, I, I have qualms about parts of that because I think there's not some of the charges look a lot like news gathering and some of them don't, right? But yeah, yeah, right. But but some of the indictment is not about that side of the line. Some of the indictment falls on the other side of the line, which is and once Assange had the information, we're charging him for what he did with it. So presumably, if and when, and we're going to get to this, if he ever were to end up in the United States, uh-huh. actually, then there's that, then there's there's that problem. That, that problem. Um, if he ever ends up here, there will be a, a an effort to dismiss the uh, counts, various counts under the indictment, citing the First Amendment yep. and maybe other concerns, but yep. probably just a First Amendment argument. Um, and the court's going to have to tease out, and it'll be very interesting at that moment to see whether the Justice Department hangs its hat on saying, look, that other stuff is relevant context. The the charge hinges on the individualized solicitation. Right. You know, Eugene Volokh has a has a post at Reason. Uh, Volokh conspiracy is now at Reason. Indeed. Yes. Um, and it and it says basically, look, solicitation's not protected. Solicitation is just not protected, which is very interesting. Uh, that's very frightening from a journalist's point of view. Where True. A lot of what you're doing is <laughs> sometimes soliciting those leaks. Um, he points out, though, that not everything in the indictment is about solicitation. Some of it is about the republication. So I thought it was very useful that Eugene separated out Assange as a defendant under the Espionage Act because he was working with the source. That's the thing that's, you know, that's one thing that's very close to what journalists do. But maybe it's something that's not very plausibly protected by the First Amendment. And so you're always at risk, even if you're a regular journalist, even though we've never seen that charge and brought before. But just to finish the thought, I'm sorry. then Eugene says, but it's an entirely separate part, the later charges that are just the pure republication, retransmission. Here it is on WikiLeaks World. And those are the ones I think are most vulnerable to a First Amendment challenge. Because that's that's where it's most like, well, it's a New York Times article disclosing, you know, the TSP or something. And some that's where program. if I'm a district judge, I'm I'm most worried about the precedent I set. And indeed, I mean it's possible that DOJ is of the same view. And so, you know, 
putting those charges at the back of the indictment. If the district judge says, okay, I'm dismissing a couple of the charges on First Amendment grounds, but I'm preserving these, yeah. that might actually be the exact precedent DOJ wants to so set. So this is like walking into a negotiation with an outrageous demand so that you could back right. away a bunch an outlier, and still an, get a lot. An, uh, an, uh, right, the, an anchoring. An outlier position. Yeah, no, no, that's no, interesting. Not, uh, sorry, um, Charlie Black, right? Charlie Black. Uh, it's, um, it's an opposition program. That's so interesting. So what about the possibility, and this should lead us around to the extradition issue, yep. um, is it possible that between the- Wait, I'm sorry, can I say, yeah, can, yeah. before we do extradition, yeah, I'm good. sorry, can yeah, I say yeah. one more thing? You mentioned the Pentagon Papers case. Yeah, yeah, yeah we I, need to say some, we and, need to tell the and, listeners where that fits in. Right, because I think, I don't want to get to, because extradition I think is going to take us off in a different direction. Mm -hmm. So um, folks are probably, I mean, if you, know, if you have some awareness of this area, I mean, by far the most important Supreme Court case um, that is- not quite on point, and I'm going to say why, is the Pentagon Papers case. So the Pentagon Papers case is in 1971 um, when the New York Times and the Washington Post, thanks to we now know what Mar uh, uh, um, um, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg, Right, I don't know why I was going to deep throat, but uh, <laughs> right, I, I was I was ah, the seventies. I was blurring it's a blur the, for a lot it, of seriously. people. Um, thanks to Daniel Ellsberg, the New York Times, Washington Post, both had copies of the Pentagon Papers, this classified Rand study of how we got into the Vietnam War. They both started publishing it. Um, the government ran into federal court and got an injunction against publication. Um, and the Supreme Court famously ruled six to three um, that the injunction was inappropriate. That prior restraint is, you know, an incredibly um, exceptional circumstance in this country. That the First Amendment generally abhors prior restraint. Um, but what's interesting about the Pentagon Papers case is multiple of the justices in the majority yep. went out of their way to say that's not to say that the government could not prosecute that's right. the New York Times and the Washington Post for violating the Espionage Act. I would say this is one of the most widely misunderstood or missed key points. The, the case did not say you're good to go, you're free to publish it just, this. It just said no injunction. It just said no no right. censorship, no prior restraint. You can publish the thing and then you can go to jail. And it ex Yeah, and it seemed to expressly anticipate that indeed there might be an Espionage Act republication uh prosecution afterwards, which there was not. Which there was not. And and there was not. And the and the Roosevelt administration didn't prosecute the Chicago Tribune when the Tribune broke the huge story about how we stole the Japanese naval codes, which is why we won the Battle of Midway. Um, but, you know, this issue has been out there for about as long as the Espionage Act has been on the books. Yeah. And as I, as I tried to argue in a piece for NBC on Friday, you know, I think there have been, Congress has, I mean, you can go back and track this. Congress has held hearings on updating or modernizing the Espionage Act, Bobby, basically every 10 years for the last 50 years, um, with people showing up and saying, guys, you know, this is a problem. Like um, the CIA general counsel in 1979 testified that it was the worst of both worlds. Is that Jeff Smith? Uh, Tony Lapham. Okay. Um, because um, Tony was concerned um, that the statute wasn't sufficiently clear to allow the government to prosecute. Right. They can't prosecute. But yet. it wasn't sufficiently clear to tell people what was legal. Well, we had sort of a, here's, here's this will tie back but to Benign indeterminacy was what uh, ben o, um, uh, Hal Edgar and Ben Schmidt wrote about. So this kind of comes back to this point that Jack Goldsmith made, which is you, you ended up with this sort of balance of terror, or, or at least an equilibrium of sorts, yeah. where it was incredibly capacious on paper, seemed like it could apply, and that was sort of out there as encouraging a little bit of self-editing, self-constraint on the part of media, which for the bulk of the time period we're talking about was establishment companies, big media companies, right? So Jack Goldsmith points out, he says, you know, a lot's changed over the past 15, 20 years. I mean, first of all, we all understand the fragmentation of media and the, the arrival of the many-to-many -many information transmission model that is the modern internet. Um, so you've taken out the mediators to a substantial extent. WikiLeaks is a reflection of this. Um, a lot of what we saw with the Snowden disclosures and the amplification of them, including the, the way in which if the Post wouldn't run something, well, maybe the Guardian would. If the Guardian wouldn't, maybe their Spiegel would. And if none of that would work, well, hey, later on, there will be the intercept. You can always get it out there or just put it on WikiLeaks to begin with. Um, this sort of model has not been met with any kind of countervailing pushback in a really punchy way like this until this point. Now, the Obama administration, to be sure, did start leaning on journalists famously quite heavily, and it generated a lot of observations to the effect that the Obama administration was trying to, some would say, change the balance. I think they would say trying to restore the prior balance. I think what we're looking at here is the Trump administration's continuation of that exact same idea from an executive branch 
information protection perspective, they think what they're doing is, is, is tweaking the balance back a little bit in a world that over the past 20 years has become extremely disclosure friendly. And, uh, it's, it's, and I'm not sure that's wrong. I mean, it may not be a good thing, so but I'm not I, sure it's wrong. I think, the a bit, I think the a bit is wrong descriptively, right? That is to say, like, and there's no question that this is trying to push, tilt the balance back in another direction, but there's nothing modest about like there, there's nothing small about about how this if, if it's successful about the precedent it would set if the e if the if the pure 793 e charges survive about the precedent that would set about the potential chilling effect wholly apart from whether there even is a future indictment that this will have on journalists thinking about you know other future national security leak stories do you think this is meaningfully different in in worse from a protect the space for publication perspective than charging this against uh, in the Rosen case. Yes. Yes. Um, for a couple of reasons, right? One, um, I think Assange is a is a less sympathetic figure in this context, even than Rosen and Weissman were. Um, but two, um, Assange can claim the mantle of public concern at least superficially, in a way that Rosen and Weissman couldn't, right? That, that this case is even closer. He's trying to inform the public. His, his, I, I assume the defense will be, right, that I am a, I am a citizen journalist trying to inform the, the public. You know, whether or not you agree with that, that wasn't the claim in Rosen and Weissman. You know, because it, it wasn't shared publicly. It was right. privately transmitted. Just to Israel. So that's, you know, that's the concern. Um, of course, this all assumes that we get our hands on him. Well, before we get to that, ah. though, I think it's interesting. <laughs> so this potentially, all these, all these, threads we're tugging on yeah. are potentially useful as building doctrinal tools to cabin the, yeah. the way this statute intersects with the First Amendment. This idea that we'll draw the line at public concern with reference to whether or not this was information retransmitted privately, so it was only passed on in sort of a bespoke way to somebody else, uh, versus the megaphone approach where everyone gets to see it. On one hand, if you say, well, but the latter situation is public concern. That makes it more defensible. That has a certain ring to it, right? Because it taps into notions of uh, our right to know as mm -hmm. a public and yeah. our, our democratic ideals of an informed public. On the other hand, it clearly greatly magnifies the harm, if there's any harm at all. It magnifies it dramatically yeah. by expanding the number of people who knows it. So I think it kind of raises the stakes on both sides of the equation it, rather than just the public's right to know side. Which is why I like Pickering balancing, because Pickering balancing tries to account for both the, the value added and the cost. Interesting. So can we can we map that onto here? Let's say the charge sticks. Like, how, what would that look like? We'd be magnifying. I mean, sorry, we'd be assessing in, in the balance. The I, mean, I mean, I think I think it'll be a mixed bag. I mean, I think some of what Assange did, right? A court will have a, a hard time saying this was clearly justified because of the because of public concern. Oh, I mean, I yeah, a lot of it. I, I I would put all my chips in that basket. But I'm, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure all of it. I mean, this is this is like this is why Assange is complicated, right? That unlike Rosen and Weissman, I don't think that there is a. I don't think that it's obvious that there's no public concern Do argument. We, so wait, help me think through this thing because I'm imagining like, what if we were the clerks working for a judge? And, uh, <laughs> Good luck, God forbid. And uh, and we're trying to help the judge think yeah. through the Pickering and balancing analysis here. And the judge says, "Wait, am I am I assessing the sum total of like the Manning disclosures?" No, no, I think it's or I think, am I, I looking at each I think it's count, individual I think document? I think like it's a, count by count, right? That is to say, is each charge. Um, is there a First Amendment defense to each charge as opposed to each specific right. element? Well, let's say there was only just one charge, a 793E charge for the republication and retransmission via WikiLeaks. Um, would we be assessing the net harm of the totality of the disclosures against the net public benefit? I would want to. Yeah. And, uh, well, And I'm not sure. I don't think I have any problem with that because it, it also seems to me pretty clear, frankly, that, that uh, Assange loses in that balance with this particular set of leaks. Probably. So again, I like think, I think his case yeah. is at least clearly worse off by far than the Snowden case would be if you had a similar Snowden style case. Yeah. All right. Um, but we're probably not going to have this case. Or not, will so, we? Well, what do you think? No. Let's. Let, I, I'm teasing. Uh, oh. Let's let's get it out on the table. So there's also the extradition issue. So um, I thought on the original indictment, which was one count of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That there was no question that he would eventually be extradited. Right, because there's du dual criminality because yep. the Brits have that same or something quite right. similar to there's it. There's no real argument that that a CFA violation is a political offense. Right. Um, and there's no European Court of Human Rights. like Because unlike us, right, the, the British are subject to a regional human rights convention that actually creates stronger protections in these cases than even our constitution would. You're focused on the potential sentence. All of this, right? So, or and also the conditions of confinement, right? Which is also a relevant piece of the extradition analysis from a human rights perspective. So, let's talk about the political offense exception idea first. Yes. So, um, I don't think 
that the British legal system will ultimately conclude that what Assange was charged with in this superseding indictment were political offenses. But man, it's a lot more of an argument now than it would have been. So when when you look up, if you go poking around, what do treaties mean when they reference yeah. an exception for political offenses? It is commonplace for people to reference what are described as crimes against the state with the example usually be given being given as a litany that includes sedition, treason, and espionage. Right. And that's meant to be distinct from crimes where the harm falls on particular private persons, like, like a murder, a robbery, et cetera. Um, does that mean, Steve, that it's a foregone conclusion that he wins, that if no. espionage is always mentioned as... Because no. there's a narrower interpretation where political offense to some people, the lay reaction would be, oh, that means it's not really a crime, but it's some kind of political game where some, you know, a regime is right. going after an enemy in a way that's not really a rule so of law-based offense. It's, it's never been seen, to my mind, as quite that narrow. But it's also never been seen as formal in the sense that, like, if it's called, if, if your country calls it espionage, it's right. a political offense. And I think herein, herein we again get back to the problem of the capaciousness of the Espionage Act. I mean, I've written before that that what the Espionage Act actually prohibits is four or five, not just different crimes, yeah. but different species of liability. Totally agreed. You know, just to, I want to drill down the point that you can't just say, oh, well, the harm's not to an individual, the harm's to the state, therefore it doesn't count. So so no, no extradition for tax fraud right. ever? Right. No extradition for anything where the offense is to the government as such no, no, or society I, as a whole? I, I think Assange's argument— So I don't argument, think that can be it. No, I think the argument's going to be that's politically motivated, right? That, well, sure, sure, sure. No, okay. But but just to be clear, like, do we have any? Do we have much insight into how this has been interpreted over time? Yeah. So, so the British government, I mean, the British courts over time have actually interpreted the the political offense exception ever more narrowly, um, including in a couple of high profile terrorism cases. Yep. Um, not always on when we're on the other end of the extradition request, but obviously many yep. of their extradition treaties, I think almost all of them, have political offense exceptions. So I think as a doctrinal matter, if the court is willing to look at political offense. And ultimately, this will be, I think, the, does the PM or the Home Secretary have to sign off on I it? I think the home, the, sec- the home Secretary. It's a policy and political Which, judgment. of course, you know, we're... we're well, who, who, who knows, knows who that's, that's going to be? be. Exactly. Well, seriously, like, what if it's a Corbyn administration? Well, then? so, but this, this so the, the point I was trying to make last week is I don't think that the bottom line changes, but it's going to be a lot more complicated. No even, question. He's got be- running room now. Even before we get into the complex transition in British yeah. politics that's underway, and it's going to take a lot longer because yeah. now, now Assange has multiple additional plausible, if not meritorious, arguments that are going to have to be aired, not just all the way through the British court system, Bobby, yeah. but potentially all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. Yeah. Um, so on the, that's right. Of course, we'll, we'll see if it still has jurisdiction by the time this thing runs mm-hmm. its course. Um, what are you saying about a Corbyn administration? Yeah. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> uh, oh, heaven help us. Heaven help them. Heaven help all of us, frankly. Um, I, I do take some solace in the fact that as completely effed as our political situation is, the Brits are actually, oh, this is it, such, it's actually worse it's right such, now. It's such a hold my beer moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, friends. Yeah. Um, and the Australians are like, wait, can we play? <laughs> we love all our cousins. All right. Um, Ooh, so I, it, oh, cousins. Yeah, cousins isn't pejorative. I thought you were going to, yeah. Pe- pejorative? No. Uh, just like yeah. an old usage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anything else to say? Oh, what I was going to say was, is there any way of looking at these uh, enhanced charges as a way of reflecting this idea that, look, just if, if the Trump administration's especially if the bar regime at the Justice Department is eager to send a strong signal that is deterrent to U.S. media organizations. Um, is it possible that part of the thinking here was, who knows if we'll ever get this guy? He may end up in Sweden facing the rape charges instead. No. We get points galore, deterrence points galore, simply by unsealing this indictment. And if it all falls apart later on, you know, who knows, that'll be years down the road. I don't think so, and and the reason why I don't think so they're so, playing to win. I I read the indictments. I, I mean, I just I have a hard time imagining that DOJ would 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 cross such a crucial line um, solely for like you know solely for how do I say um, deterrence purposes, right? That mm-hmm. that that they would take such a dramatic. I mean, and there's no question they understand it's a dramatic stuff. Oh yeah, no, everybody knows that. Um, right? Um, in a context where you know they actually never really thought they were going to get them. Because yeah. um, why unseal that? I mean, I, I just no. I mean, well, I you got to unseal to yeah, get the deterrent effect. Yeah, yeah, but it's just it, it's it is such it's such a risk to run. Yeah. right for for nothing. So they've put their chips into the middle of the table on. Well, this and one. they had to. I mean, just so just to back up. I mean, the so it, it um, international law prohibits countries from changing the grounds right. um, on which an extraditee oh, is being right. prosecuted after the extradition has been completed. You can't pull a bait and switch. 
And so this was a necessary predicate. If the government ever wanted to bring these charges, um, it had to be sort of now so that it could be fully vindicated through the extradition process. And just to close the loop on the topic before we move on, uh, as you pointed out earlier, now that you've got many more charges and weightier charges, with the possibility of, of consecutive sentences, it'll become an issue from a European Court of Human Rights type perspective or European Convention on Human Rights perspective on whether the, the risk of the final sentence being such that it somehow would be deemed uh, sufficient to block the extradition. We'll certainly see arguments, right? And as you pointed out, maybe there'll be arguments about conditions of confinement, which I think that would find expression in terms of there having to be diplomatic assurances that he would not be held under certain conditions of confinement yep. if, if extradited. I, I think that's right. All right. All uh, this to say, there's going to be this is going to be quite a show. A new sustaining member. I think that's right. All right, excellent. Um, speaking of sustaining members, is, is that is that excellent? The, uh, you know, for the show, it's excellent. <laughs> uh, our our entire career, Steve, are built around things that are mostly very unfortunate, but they give us a lot of things to talk and debate. Well, this is what, I mean, this is what I, I, you know, all my stupid obscure scholarship that is now unfortunately unobscure. Unobscure. Um, well, all, all I will say was it was useful that you know last week when all this went down, I was able to say, "Hey, twelve years ago, I wrote a piece about the Espionage Act in the press." Yeah, I already said this before I knew what this fact pattern was. Um, the Wall ruling. So ah, the Wall. Judge Gilliam, Howard Speaking Gilliam, of, is in the Northern District of California, and he's got the Sierra Club versus Oakland. Trump. It's an Oakland-based case. Sierra Club. Versus Hi, Grandma. Tr- <laughs> Did he write that? He should have written that in there. Seriously. For you. Um, so he's ruled against the administration, issuing a preliminary injunction. Uh, in part. In part, in denying in other parts. Uh, so basically, he's he's taking issue with one of the several uh, threads that the administration has pulled together to send money towards border wall construction. The one that he has the problem with is the uh, the the reallocation of funds um, to the uh, DOD counter narcotics funding uh, provision. This is this is 10 U.S. Code 284, which clearly authorizes the Secretary of Defense to, quote, provide support for counter-drug activities or activities to counter transnational crime of uh, the activities of any other department if such support is requested by another department. And under 284B7, that support can include funding for construction of roads and fences and installation of lighting to block drug smuggling corridors across international boundaries. So the idea was to plus up the Section 284 account with tons of money from other sources. Um, and Judge Gilliam says, nope, wrong, doesn't work as a statutory matter. And there's enough of a threat of a constitutional separation of powers problem that we need to, in any event, interpret the statute to avoid it. Should we run through that real quick before talking about the other threads? Sure. All right. Let me do this one real quick. 284. Um, the idea was there's, there's a section 8005 that authorizes reprogramming. In this case, it would be, I think, the, the ceiling of $4 billion, a couple of billion at stake here, almost real money. Uh, you can reallocate, quote, working capital funds of the Department of Defense or funds made available in this act. Um, the transfer has to be subject to certain conditions. There's a list in the statute of six things. The key ones are the final three on the list. The circumstances prompting the transfer have to be unforeseen. They have to be unforeseen military requirements. And it can't be a situation where the funds requested have been denied by Congress already. So Judge Gilliam starts off by saying, after some stuff about standing, which was maybe part of the edgier part of the opinion, Steve, I think was actually, you know, finding Sierra Club gets to have standing uh, based on, you know, aesthetic concerns of members and such. Um, setting that aside on the substance, he says, first of all, this is a situation where these funds were requested of Congress and Congress denied them. Steve, I found that part pretty persuasive. I think that was the strongest part of the analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think the question is just whether, you know, it, it all comes down to sort of the language of the statute, right? And sort of whether whether the language of an older statute is going to supersede the, exp- the, the clear but not textual uh, refusal on a, on a future Congress's part to provide more specific authorization. I feel like he, whereas here the administration was really specific in asking for funds for a particular thing, yeah. and Congress very specifically said no in the amount they wanted, I think that's kind of exactly the paradigm situation that Congress in drafting 8005 uh, Condition 6, Yeah, I think that's what they had in mind. Listen, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I just think that's where it'll be vulnerable, right, if, if and when it's appealed. So that wasn't you well. Know, when so Gilliam, yeah, right. It's already in route, right? Uh, Gilliam also said, by the uh, way, another, another one of those activist Obama appointed judges. He also says, I think 
almost equally persuasively, if not even more persuasively, perhaps, I'll tuck myself into it. He says, uh, remember, the fourth factor there into the statute is the exigency has to be unforeseen. And the paradigm here would be there's been a natural disaster or a war has broken out. In this case, far from being unforeseen, it is something that the administration's been obsessing about for two years. It's been asking for funding. All of this was in play during the last funding cycle. Um, and the fact, and so DOD came back in an amicus brief and said, well, but the, D, the specific of the moment request from DHS to give us these funds, that, that was unforeseen. And it reminds me of Fletch. So Chevy Chase is in the doctor's office and he's pretending to know the, the patient. Uh, I guess. Alan Stanley? Yeah, he's pretending to know. They're talking about somebody who died, right? Oh. And uh, he says, oh, you know, it was really sudden. And he's like, nah, he's been dying for years. Well, right at the end there. The, the end was very sudden. Kind of the same deal here. They've been <laughs> requesting this for years. Yeah, yeah, but the, but, the, but the actual ask for the DHS funds, like that was very specific. Judge Gilliam says, if, if that were to work, then there would be no circumstance that's not unforeseen because the DHS or whichever other non-DOD department is making the request, it would always be a novelty that comes up at the last minute that, that by definition, it only happened when it happened. So he says that can't be what unforeseen is referring to. Otherwise, every new request would be unforeseen. I think that's probably good too. So I think Judge Gilliam's right on his statutory analysis about transferring these particular funds in this particular way. Um, not remotely so sure about his sort of uh, gilding the lily argument at the end where he goes constitutional and says, by the way, uh, he treats it as a separate problem, standalone separate problem, that we have to construe the statute this way to avoid a separation of powers problem insofar as otherwise we might be infringing Congress's spending power. I think that's not right. I think that if, if in fact, the Trump administration is correct about the unforeseenness of this exigency, and if the right analysis is that Congress hasn't specifically denied it, then 8005 clearly allows this. And yeah. I don't think it's, it's taking Congress's prerogatives. It's it's following the mandate Congress itself laid down. So I'd rather he not have made that argument, but so be it. Um, the administration does better on the other categories, yeah. or at least sort of. It's, it's a bit of a mess. It's a bit of a mess. And it's a bit of a mixed bag, which I actually think you know complicates things on the appeal, right? Because he didn't enjoin he didn't enjoin the the sort of the, the funds in their entirety. He only enjoined some specific uses of the funds, right? Yeah. So There's, so one of the other threads is yeah. the uh, something we talked about on the show a whole bunch when this first went down. That's the Section twenty eight oh eight funds. Indeed. Right. That's the military, military construction military construction budget. And what we the the nut of our analysis back then was. Uh, the amount of money or the things that are eligible to be spent upon when you reallocate military construction budget, there, there's a phrase here, and I'm going to quote it. Under the statute, uh, it could be any construction, development, conversion, or extension of any kind carried out with respect to a military installation, dot, 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 or any acquisition of land or construction of a defense access road. And, and we said way back when that, well, acquisition of land seems to be the only thing that you could do with this money, but that's something very relevant here because that could help fund eminent domain land purchases. Uh, interestingly, it seems, from what I gather from Judge Gilliam's opinion, instead of emphasizing the clear pathway to acquiring land with this money, DOD and the administration emphasized the first part. They argued that this would actually, the border wall building would be a military installation treating the border itself as a military installation. Whoa. Well, here's the here's the statutory definition of military installation. It means a base, camp, post, station, yard, center, or other activity under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of the Military Department. Da 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 da. Um, and Judge Gilliam says, look, other activities obviously a capacious word that can mean lots of things. But invoking good old Noskitora Sokis, uh, you'll know a thing by its associates. Uh, everything else in that list is a specific location that's actually a military facility of some kind. Surely other activity under military jurisdiction is meant to have some sort of geographic boundary around it that's defined by, you know, military land. Um, <laughs> it seems to, you know, prove too much. It could be just anything else DOD wants to do. Then what's the point of the restriction? And it just sort of doesn't square well with the idea of the word installation being what we're defining. The border's not an installation. It's a place. A big, long, skinny but long place. Yeah, I mean, I, I gotta say, I mean, I, I thought, I thought this was a, I thought this was a very, I mean, you, 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 you flagged the one part where I wasn't sold, right? But, but the rest of it I thought was quite convincing. Uh, what, you mean uh, 
the the last part, right? The 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 condition the eight thousand five thing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, so he also quickly rejects the NEPA claim, which yep. I think we talked about on the show before weak. is is a pretty weak claim. Yep. Uh, d- sh- short version of that: DHS has a statutory waiver, uh, doesn't have to do the national, uh, doesn't have to do the, the environmental right. impact statements. Yes, before they build the. The wall. argument was well, but this is DOD money, and DOD doesn't have a waiver. But it's uh, obviously yeah, covered. Yeah. 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 Um, so, but then the government doesn't. The government doesn't lose entirely here, right? So yeah. explain that. What's going on here? Like, who, who won what? Who lost so, what here? I mean, we got we, so we got part. Like, he enjoined the construction in part, um, which is to say, he enjoined use of particular funds for particular purposes, but he didn't enjoin the actual construction in its entirety. Is that is that a pretty good pith? Summary. And I guess, you know, part of what's going on here is that obviously this is going to go up. Yeah. This is not the last word. No. Uh, this is more like a rehearsal of the arguments yeah. before the Ninth Circuit digs in. Yeah, although although I have to say, I mean, I mean, we have seen, I think, some unfortunately um, sweeping district court opinions in some of these cases. And I think Judge Gillum really, you know, did his best. I don't think I agree with all of it, but did his best to sort of take each claim on its own. And sort of separately parse out the different yeah. legal arguments, and and not sort of just you know knee jerk assume that everything was illegal. No, it's that's Trump. right. Actually, I, I do want to be clear on this. I think it's an extremely uh, it, it's a good craftsman like opinion. Yep. The only part I have a problem with, actually, I you know I'd rather he not have reached the separation yeah. of powers argument, but he didn't depend on that. Um, I am I quibbles with the standing analysis to well, begin and, with. And, and so that's, that's right. where DOJ is going to have its most hay to make. Um, and indeed, that's where I think they might have the most sympathy. You know, from if not the Ninth Circuit, the Supreme Court, and with regard to the Ninth Circuit, I mean, it's worth stressing that while the president keeps you know pillorying the Ninth Circuit, he also keeps appointing judges to the Ninth Circuit. <laughs> um, that. So a court that was actually quite, I think, ideologically, um, or at least quite imbalanced by dint of the president who appointed the judges at the beginning of President Trump's tenure is now actually pretty close to even. There are 29 active judges on the Ninth Circuit, 16 appointed by Democratic presidents, 13 by Republicans. That doesn't prove anything. But I think it, you know, I think the the government has. This is a different Ninth Circuit than the one from five years. ago. I don't ago. want to let go of my stereotypes about the Ninth Circuit. They're they're you know they're cause for so many jokes. Uh, it's really going to ruin Your things. Stereotypes are all wrong. Now now the, do the Fifth Circuit. Now do the Fourth Circuit. I was just going to say because the Fourth Circuit went through the same transformation yeah. previously in the other direction. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So. Um, speaking of courts, uh, oh yeah, you've got a date with one, Steve. Speaking of the Fifth Circuit. Congratulations. Thanks. Cert granted in Hernandez, the cross-border shooting case. Oh, uh, goody. On question one, not question two. Are you surprised by that? Um, no. because We should tell people what that is. So, so we had, pre- I mean, this is, uh, right, once again, this is the cross-border shooting case um, where I am one of the lawyers who represents the parents of a 15-year-old Mexican national who was shot and killed while standing um, basically in the aqueduct, um, in the culvert, um, where the Rio Grande used to be between El Paso and Juarez. Um and he sued the officer who shot him, Jesus Mesa, um, claiming that it was unprovoked and therefore a violation of his Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. You know, there is still an open question about whether, in fact, he has Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. But at this stage of the litigation, you take the allegations as pleaded in the well-pleaded complaint. Um, and the, what the case is really about is whether assuming he has constitutional rights and assuming that Mesa clearly violated them, um, do the federal courts have the power to provide a damages remedy under the so-called Bivens doctrine? This is really a, a referendum on Bivens and the circumstances in which federal courts can provide damages for constitutional violations by federal officers because I think to a lot of people's surprise, Congress has never done so. Congress has never generally authorized suits against federal officers for damages when they violate our constitutional rights. Um, we had presented two questions in our search petition. The first was, should there be a remedy under Bivens? And the second was, if not, um, is there a constitutional problem with the Westfall Act, a 1988 statute that actually displaces the Texas state law tort claim that Hernandez's parents might otherwise have been able to bring? Um, basically says, um, no more scope of employment state tort law claims against federal officers. And what we tried to do was basically say, hey, Supreme Court, if you say no Bivens, you're going to have to answer this incredibly hard, messy question about the due process clause. Does it tip the hand at all that they didn't grant on the Westfall Act question and only want to focus on the Bivens question? I mean, I I do think it reinforces that we have an uphill battle. Um, I don't think it necessarily tips the hand because the Westfall Act will still bear upon the Bivens analysis. I mean, the Supreme Court has stressed over and over again, Bobby, that part of the Bivens analysis is whether there are alternative remedies available. Um, and the Westfall Act is actually the principal reason why, in our case, there isn't. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to say a lot about the Westfall Act. I think the key is that um, not granting the second question leaves the Supreme Court with the ability to say no Bivens, 
but not reach, but, right. but not so it can fully be incremental with the consequences. It can leave that for another day. Right. And and just to be clear, I mean, the you know, folks may remember two years ago in the Abbasi case that the Supreme Court really dramatically narrowed, to my mind, wrongly, um, the Bivens Doctrine. But Abbasi went out of its way to distinguish that case from, quote, individual instances of law enforcement overreach, unquote, where there's no other remedy. And our whole argument is this is the this exact is that case, case yeah. that Abbasi distinguished. Of course, this is a different court. All right. So when are you going to be up so, for this? So um, I think we, we don't know yet. Um, the best guess is that we're looking at a November argument based on how many cases the court has already granted, how they've been moving along. So, you know, this, the court has five days set for oral argument in its November setting next term. Um, I think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the first week and Tuesday, Wednesday, the second week because of Veterans Day. Um, so if I had to bet, it will be it'll be one of those five days in November. Um, five which, days in November. Five days in November. Um, you know, we'll we'll know as we get closer. But you know, I do think um, it's going to be a busy summer. You know, the next step for us, I think, is um, it's not unusual in this context to push the briefing schedule back because the Supreme Court doesn't really care yeah. as long as the briefs are in, like in time. You know, two weeks before. Or, well, the rules used to say one week. Now they say ten days. But basically, as long as the briefing is done, you know, 10 days to two weeks before the argument, they don't care if they come in sooner. So, you know, we'll probably try to push the briefing schedule back, do most of this work over the summer. All right. Well, congratulations and condolences, Thanks. like I said before. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I'm constantly surprised at how little a deal Bivens is to people at large, right? Because yeah. I, think, I think there's just this assumption that when your constitutional rights are violated, of course you're entitled to a remedy. Well, right. I think most people don't really realize the, the complex array is. of doctrines and statutes that, that prevent one from having any particular remedy uh, of that kind. All right. So turning our attention to the National Security Division, quick little roundup. Um, in the case of Mark Domingo, this is a California man who had been a soldier in Afghanistan and was already under arrest. Uh, they've now got an indictment on him. And, and again, this is an allegation that he was planning uh, to carry out a bombing in the Long Beach area. He was uh, an avowed jihadist. Uh, I don't think any of the news that's juicy here is actually about the fact pattern. I, I think it's just sort of the next step in a process we already knew was unfolding. And then you've got uh, the United States versus Jonathan Shi of New Jersey. Uh, back in April, this guy started appearing online in places like Instagram. Uh, saying some pretty frightening things. Uh, he appeared with a ski mask denouncing Zionism, as well as the, quote, neoliberal establishment. He waved a Hamas flag, showed a gun. Long story short, uh, he's being charged with uh, attempted material support. He tried to send money. He was making plans to uh, perhaps try to join the U.S. Army, made a false statement about his, his past activities in the course of doing so. Pretty scary situation, but he is under arrest. And then... Completing the circuit of different jurisdictions, let's talk real quick, as we promised, about the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. <laughs> it lost. Um, I, th I think this might be the first the first ever reference to it, it lost. It is. Yes. In our, in our Welcome, it lost. It lost. It's now an it lost show. Um, so what's going on here is, as you may recall, but, from, but I wait, think we did but, talk about this but before. Kawhi, haven't we talked about no, it before? Don't with that. <laughs> I, I can't. I just can't. Um, Kawhi not. That, you know why not. Oh, Kawhi Leonard, please. So the Kerch Strait is the body of water that connects the Black Sea to the Sea of Azov, and it's basically between mainland Russia and Crimea. Um, there is a Russia-Ukraine treaty that purports to give both countries the right to uh, pass through the waters. Um, we talked about the situation when it unfolded, I think it was last November. Uh, three Ukrainian ships, uh, and at least at least two of which were military ships, naval vessels, um, were traveling up from Odessa, and they were told they could not pass through. The Ru Russia announced that the zone was closed. Uh, the Russians intercepted them. They fired on these vessels. They rammed one of the vessels. Um, three, three to six people were wounded. Um, Russian jets and helicopters uh, were also part of this. Uh, the the strait was blockaded. I mean, it was a dramatic deal. And here's the most dramatic part. The Russians seized the Ukrainian crew, and they're holding them not as POWs. They're holding them as criminal defendants, and they are prosecuting them like criminals. Um, Ukraine has, I think, quite rightly been arguing in other settings that like, this was this was an armed, uh, armed conflict scenario between two sovereigns. It's subject to the rules of international armed conflict. It is uh, clearly the case that the sailors are entitled to POW status, and that would bring with it combatant immunity. Uh, they cannot be prosecuted for ordinary violations of Russian domestic law. 
um, the Russians just as clearly have been disputing that, obviously disputing that. So you would think that it's a given that the Ukrainian position would be that this was armed conflict, these were military activities. Uh, Ukraine has an action proceeding through the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea framework, the UNCLOS framework, which provides for this compulsory dispute resolution mechanism through the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, ITLOS. Uh, but they can't have jurisdiction there if this is characterized as military activities because the Russians, like many states, uh, has a, they have a declaration when they joined UNCLOS that they would not accept the mandatory jurisdiction of ITLOS with respect to military activity. Uh, this is a big deal for the United States because though we've not yet joined UNCLOS, everyone understands that if and when we do, we certainly would insist upon a similar declaration exempting from compulsory arbitration or, or compulsory jurisdiction in the ITLOS anything we would characterize as military, anything that would count as military activity. So you would think the, the Ukrainians are out of luck, but the Ukraine position is, or Ukraine's position is that this wasn't military activity. The Russians aren't participating. Um, ITLOS has decided it's not military activity, and therefore they can adjudicate what was happening here. And I got to say, the, uh, the rationale I don't find persuasive. Um, first of all, uh, it lost kind of brushes aside the fact that a bunch of military assets were being used, explaining that the line between, you know, especially in, in the naval setting, the line between warships and law enforcement vessels and, and never mind the jets and helicopters, it's all so blurry anyways. Who knows where the line is these days? Uh, secondly, uh, the court kind of brushes it's off. It's hard. It's hard. This is too hard. It's hard. It's like that old Will Ferrell skit in Saturday Night Live. It's hard. Um <laughs> uh, the court brushes off the characterizations of the parties in other settings. Uh, I think correctly stating that that can't be controlling, but treating it by, you know, much worse than that, not only not controlling, but seemingly not all that relevant at all, which is something when you see one party arguing a different position in this particular setting, I think then it becomes very relevant. Indeed. In any event, um, what they do think is important is that the Russians, them, they, they characterize the whole thing as a dispute over navigational rules. <coughs> and says that Russia, as you'll notice, ends up uh, treating this as a crime under ordinary Russian law, and they used uh, the power of arrest, and now they're prosecuting, and therefore it must be law enforcement, not military activity, which I think is an incredible bit of bootstrapping. The bootstrapping logic here is, is offensive. The whole, the whole issue is, can they get away with doing that? Right. And they probably shouldn't be able to get away with doing that. But to treat, Because if that's law enforcement. Right. But to, to treat the thing they're doing that's contested as evidence that it's in the domain to do that, I think, begs the question. So not happy with the ruling, but there it is. And I think it will have a, a significant chilling effect, as, as James Kraska has argued in a good piece at EGIL Talk. Um, it's going to have a chilling effect on uh, the United States, for one, in deciding, to, or do we really want to sign up for this? And will our declaration about military activities have the uh, punch that, it, that we'd want it to? So I'm not a fan of the Russians in this episode, to put it mildly. But nonetheless, I think this was probably not the right outcome. True. Speaking of things that are true, we've completed our run of substantive topics. Or at least we're just tired of talking about them. We are. We are not tired of talking about the NBA, my friends. So it, It's sports ball time. It's sports ball time. If you don't want to hear it, sayonara. Uh, if you do want to hear it, Steve, time to share your thoughts on the NBA. <laughs> General, Generally, just generally. the NBA. Success? Failure? So I... I found, I mean, for, first things first, I think the Warriors are going to stomp on the Raptors. And I think this is going to be, you know, a hilariously short series. Maybe maybe the Raptors get one game at home because they have home court advantage. So maybe it's, you know, five games. Uh, do you think that, uh, first, do you think Kevin Durant's going to play and second doesn't matter? Um, I, don't, I actually, I don't think it matters. So I, the Warriors I actually take think, him I actually way. think the Warriors are in such a groove without him that, like, the only way this series goes longer is if Durant comes back. And it's awkward. Yeah. Like, maybe he comes back and awkward. he's not he's not 100% yeah. and he's forcing it. Um, do you think, where's Kevin Durant playing next year? Um, where's Durant? Um, I, hopefully not New York. <laughs> for, for his own sake, not MSG. Um, yeah, well, yeah, well. Well, why wouldn't that be great? Why shouldn't he go there and then team up with whatever, you know, whoever they end up drafting and... Um, are you are you so jaded on the Knicks? I'm just so jaded. I just I, he should go to DC. Let, let him go to the Wizards. Um. So, but so I think the finals are going to be anticlimactic. I, the Raptors Buck series I thought was fascinating, and I know I know it's hard for you to watch Kawhi thrive. No, and he was amazing. He was, he was amazing, amazing. as but, I always used to say with pleasure. Now I say it with pain. But the sort of the in series defensive adjustment that the Raptors made to basically contain Giannis. Yeah. 
um, was, you know, I mean, I mean, it happens all the time. We just don't see it because it's hard sometimes when you're not like, you know, knee deep in it to sort of see all the, you know, strategic and tactical things that are happening sort of off the ball. Right. But, but it was a dramatic change. Dramatic uh, the, change. The Bucks were looking great. And then suddenly it was just a different deal. So all credit to the coaching staff of the Raptors. Um, indeed. You don't um, hear that often. No. And, and you know, and I think, you know, it, it's a good sign that, like, Giannis is still has a lot of room to grow, which is pretty impressive because I think he's going to win the MVP. Yeah. Well, he needs, yeah, he, he, he probably should. You know, obviously, uh, you would say at this point, for at least for the East, so Kawhi's the playoff MVP, but the regular season MVP, certainly, I think Giannis earned that. Um, does, if you're Kawhi, do you stay with the Raptors? Yes. Yeah. Where if he doesn't go there, do you think there's any chance he gets to join LeBron at the Lakers? Is he going to go? Uh, I don't know. I was going to say cross town, but it's not cross town. Still, stay at the Staples Center with a different team and uh, play for the Clippers instead. I mean, that could be awkward. Yeah. Um, I, just, I mean, what, what's so clear from these playoffs is that the balance of power is entirely in the West. Um, and so, if you're so, it just hasn't changed. So the the the, the departure of LeBron from the East merely reinforced re- that. Well, although so so LeBron's out, Kawhi's in. I would argue that at this point in their respective careers, that was sort of a net even swap for the East and West. Yeah. Um, maybe, although, I mean, I just... I, it's I, more that the Celtics have fallen apart. Right. And the Sixers haven't come, haven't progressed not beyond there yet. The, and the Bucks clearly aren't where we thought, you know, yeah. the Bucks. I mean, you know, the it turns out that the Bucks are defensible, which, you know, at least in the Celtics series didn't seem true. Yeah. Um, Tells us more about the Celtics, it turns out, than about the, Bucks. the Bucks. That's right. Um, all was it to say, so if I'm, a, if I'm a free agent, I'm thinking, you know, head east, young man. All right, um, pr- predictions for next year. We're doing that? Sure, just off the cuff. I, I don't know. The Warriors are going to win again. No, definitely not. You can't, you can't just stay with the Warriors. Well, but except that what we've seen the last couple of weeks, that the Warriors are actually maybe better without Kevin Durant than with him. No, that's right. And so, so if they can... So Durant departs. The Warriors are a little bit more cohesive, yeah. a little less divided across the megastars. Well, and, and you don't have like you don't have Kurt, you don't have Steph and Clay like you know suppressing their own games to sort of right. facilitate Durant. They kind of do their own thing. I think that it's just more a question of at a certain point, you know, does age begin to slow any of those players? Uh, do they lose any key pieces other than Kevin Durant in the process? Um, and does anyone else rise to the occasion? I think that I think the Rockets are going to go into decline. Um, the Spurs will be better, but not better enough. Dejounte Murray will be back, and they'll have a they'll have a good year. A lot of those new pieces will be more gelled. I'd I'd say they'll be you know third or fourth. Um, I think the Nuggets are going to bump the Rockets off for the main challenger to the Warriors next year. Uh, are you are you in with the Nuggets? Maybe I do love Jokic. Yeah, he's pretty fun. Yep. Uh, I and I think frankly next year to, it, we could see the Mavericks beginning to come back as Maybe. well. They've got a good young core. All right, uh, anything else on the NBA, or should we let this one die? I think we can let this die. All right. Um, I think that's it. Is it oh, next week, we're not going to— Right, so we're, we're taking a break next week because you are, you are traveling. I'm traveling. So, so, so we'll, have, we'll have two weeks of crazy stuff to build up before, we, we come, before episode 124. Right, we'll be out there online, but— um, Indeed know, we will. You think—okay, predict, let's close with this. Predictions for crazy things between now and two weeks from now. Are we at war? With whom? Iran. Nah. Nah. Okay. North Korea? No, because Trump's like buddies with, with Kim Jong-un yeah, his, now. The whole, point, the whole point of his foreign policy for the North Koreans is just to occasionally have these moments where he gets to hang out with them. Like a buddy, buddy cop movie. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this is the scary thing about this administration is that, you know, in two weeks, who the frack knows what could happen? Maybe some kind of subpoena battle? Yeah, I mean, I, oh, we didn't talk about the so we didn't talk about the subpoena, the update, and the deal that the that the House made. Yeah, um, so give us the basics. Nah, nah we'll save it for next save time. Save for two weeks. Always just to say that I think the House is being really clever. Hmm, intriguing notes. And, and, on, and on that, um, so we do need frivolity suggestions. So you know, now that now that oh, Thrones hey, is over, what about should we have a sort of a a watch club with our fun. with our listeners? Yep. Um, let's get some suggestions either for a movie. Or either a show and series to start up, and we'll start from the beginning and start reviewing it as we go. Great. Um, so if you're listening and have some ideas, throw them out there. It needs to be something we can access uh, you know, reasonably. Um, I, there was a suggestion that we start from the beginning with Battlestar Galactica. It's a possibility. Um, so, I mean, send us your suggestions, everybody. All right. On that note, uh, he's at Bobby Chesney, and he is out of here. Uh, I am Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your favorite NBA team, 
Um, I don't really have one right now. That's pretty sad. Come to the Spurs. Yeah. You've already got the Tottenham thing. You can add on very easily. Go Spurs! My, go, sp- my Spurs. Go, y'all. Spurs. All right. Stay safe out there and, and, and come on, you Spurs. Adios.